So what I wanted to start out with was this news story. And this is from a, a Jewish newspaper called Haaretz. Now, Haaretz is a very, uh, what I would call secular uh, liberal newspaper in Israel that is not conservative Jew or religious Jew. I would say it's a secular Jewish pub publication. But I love this headline. David and Solomon's biblical kingdom may have existed after all new studies suggest. Monumental structures that Gezer have been re redated to the early 19th century BCE, which means that Solomon built them after all. Biblical archaeologists say, but colleagues remain skeptical. Well, you can't, you know, skeptics are going to be skeptics, right? The point is, is that, and you can see this, here's the new story. This is, this is the massive with the Tel Gezer. So what it says, remains of gates, defensive walls, and large administrative building at Gezer date to the early 19th century BC, putting them in the right time frame to have been built by King Solomon, just as the Bible claims. The radiocarbon dating of the 3,000-year-old ruins of Gezer, an ancient site in, ancient, in central Israel, was published Wednesday in the journal PLS One and claims to introduce new evidence in the long-standing debate about how much the Bible is a true story. Particularly, the work relates to the historicity of the fabled kingdom of David and Solomon. Of course, it's not fabled if it's real, right? Or fabled meaning what they really should write there is legendary, and that would be probably a little bit more accurate, right? Okay. Um, the study does not purport to prove that the united monarchy of the Israelites described in the Bible was a historical reality, but it shows that the kingdom's existence and involvement in major construction at Gezer cannot be ruled out. And so like anything in archaeology, it's the interpretation of the evidence that's the issue, right? The same thing happens in science. The same thing happens in even just history itself. It's not so much the data or the evidence. It's how you interpret the evidence, right? It's what when we call this a worldview, right? I call them worldview glasses. What set of glasses do you point on? And so I'd like to say that the biblical worldview gives you 2020 vision or 2015 vision, right? And that other visions and other glasses make everything look red or other glasses that you put on make everything look fuzzy or everything looks dark. And it's like, well, that's because you're wearing sunglasses, not 20. You, you get what I'm saying? And so you're just putting on the wrong glasses. But it's interesting that every every year we get news headlines like this, where in ancient Israel or in uh, Egypt or in Babylon or all these other places, we see these different areas in the ancient Near East, and it confirms the biblical account. The Greco-Roman world, same thing when it comes to the New Testament. And so we get these evidence. And so I just, I find this funny because you get this. Now, here's my point is no other religion in the world has this level of evidence and has this level of study going on. So, 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 I mean, like, think about this. You're not going to find, for example, and again, I'm not trying to pick on people, but in our, in our context here, you're not going to find archaeological evidence in Hill Cumorah of ancient battles. You're just not. Okay. You're not going to find those things. Okay. You're not going to find, you know, lost tribes of Israel in the United States. You're just not. Okay. In Islam, there's all these claims that Muhammad makes that you will not be able to verify archaeologically. You just can't find them. Only in the Christian worldview that we see in both the Old and New Testaments do you find this level of evidence that's confirmed over and over and over again. And again, skeptics have to try to account for it. Well, colleagues remain skeptical. Well, of course they remain skeptical because they don't want the Bible to be true. Okay, And so that's 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 the argument because the more it confirms the scriptures, then it, the scriptures also make certain claims like on you, for example. Pastor Dinger talked about that today, the magisterial versus the ministerial use of reason. The magisterial use of reason puts you above God's word. The ministerial use uses it in service to God's word. Okay, so we're not anti-reason. We're just reason in its proper place. Does that make sense? Because God, it's um, it's the way Augustine puts it is faith-seeking understanding. So if you're not a person of faith and you have skeptical glasses on, you're going to look at evidence and see skeptical things. Well, that does date there, but maybe there's some contamination here or something, or maybe, uh, maybe there's a, maybe this is really not Israeli, maybe this or Israelite, maybe this is Phoenician or something. And so you 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 can interpret it, you can adjust it to fit your worldview, right? You have a rescuing device to rescue your worldview. So again, it's not so much the evidence that's the issue; it's the interpretation of the evidence and what worldview do you have as you interpret the evidence, and that's why that matters. So I wanted you to see that. Because it's germane. And then Ralph had asked this question, and I'll highlight this on your on your screen here so you can see this. This whole tent, this whole BCE thing. If you haven't seen that before, this is in a lot of books, and I deal with this a lot um, as a history teacher and as somebody who spent some time in, in academics. The BCE Stanford uh, stands for before common era. CE stands for common era. BCE is our BC, meaning before Christ. Okay. AD Anno Domini in the year of our Lord is our conventional. So right now it's in the year of our Lord, 2023, right? That's how we would say that. So AD 2023. So if you see CE, that's just AD. It's the same number. And so even though they're trying to erase God and erase Christ from secular disciplines, quote unquote, because I would say there's no such thing as a secular discipline because everything belongs to Christ, right? But if you're, they're trying to erase them, but they're still using the same dates. 
So it really doesn't accomplish anything, right? And actually, I show there's this old spoof from 2016. I'm not going to show it to you in class. If you want to look this up. Um, back in 2016, Jimmy Kimmel did a politically incorrect Thanksgiving. And it starts off the year 1620, if you choose to approve of the Judeo-Christian oppressive calendar. And like they, like they actually mock political correctness. In 2016, it's hilarious. Watching it now, it looks like a prophecy for what's going to happen out of the pandemic, just to be honest. But And this is from, he's a liberal, he's not a Christian, and it's called a politically correct Thanksgiving. But he says, if you choose to believe in the oppressive, you know, Greco-Roman calendar. <laughs> and so they make fun of that in 2016. He can't do that in 2023. So even in just seven years, right? Things have, things, things have accelerated. And so I use AD in my classes. I say BC. I say in my students, whenever they see BC or BCE or CE in a reading, you know, I hand out like academic groups. It's like, you can just cross it out and write AD if you want, or write BC if you want, or I just read it as BC. I just skip the E because it's the same dates. So that's, that's what's going on. And again, they're trying to erase the, the Christian heritage of the West is what they're doing and trying to make everything secular. And it doesn't work because everything belongs to Christ, but that's what they try to do. All right. So what I want to do today is two things. I want to introduce, whoops, that's the wrong one. I want to introduce the book of Chronicles. And after I introduce this, we're going to go to 1 Samuel again and watch David be uh, pursued by Saul. So th these are huge chunks of, of, of narrative text. There's not a lot of theological pondering that goes on. It's a lot of just straight out storytelling. And I'm, that doesn't mean it's not true. It's true. It's just historical narrative. And so you're getting kind of eyewitness accounts of these events. So there's not a lot of, you know, high theology as much as it's let's look at the drama unfold. It's, it's meant to be read as a drama as Saul pursues David historically. But before we get into that, because we're getting to the point where Saul is going to eventually pass away and David is going to inherit the kingdom, the book of Chronicles, the bulk of Chronicles starts right there. So the first nine chapters are genealogies, and we will look at that briefly um, at a different time. Um, but chapter nine restates Saul's genealogy, and then first, uh, first Chronicles 10 talks about the death of Saul. And it gives us some information, but it also tells us why Saul's uh, rule failed. It gives a kind of a higher view. So you have an outline for you, and I printed some of this, not printed, I copied some of this over. It's from the Lutheran Study Bible. So if you have the Lutheran Study Bible, you have this already. Um, but for those of you who don't have it, or if you want a, a separate sheet with a different font or whatever, you now have this. But here's kind of your introduction to Chronicles. So the author is unknown, just like Samuel. Um, it's likely a Levite or somebody that's priestly because they have a very theological view. They're really, really concerned both about the Davidic line and also concerned about uh, the temple and the priest, the priestly class that deals with the sacrifices in the temple. It's written about 430 BC because the narrative actually takes you to the exile of the Jews to Babylon. So it starts with Saul dying, and then we get the reign of David and the reign of Solomon, and then it goes through the kings of Judah. It actually pretty much ignores the northern kingdoms altogether. It's more focused, again, on that Davidic line in the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom only shows up uh, when it's in conflict with or somehow in cahoots with the southern kingdom, if it suits the narrative. So it almost ignores the northern kingdom. And so again, 430 BC, so written by the Levites, the priestly class, after the return from exile in Babylon because of Cyrus letting them come back. That's the emperor of Persia at the time. In fact, by the way, we have archaeological evidence of, this, of Cyrus's decree. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It actually, We actually have his decree that's recorded in the Bible. Um, we have that. And I can show that to you some other time. Um, there are different places, of course, obviously, Jerusalem, Gibeon, Mount Gilboa. That's where Saul dies. So that's the Battle of Mount Gilboa. Hebron, Ammon, Syria, and Zion. Alex, Alec asked me, he was looking at these slides this morning. He goes, Dad, why is Jerusalem and Zion both there? Isn't Jerusalem Zion? It's like, Zion's the place where God is. And so, for example, we have it in our hymnal. You may know this. This is just a little theological aside for you. We have the hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Zion, City of Our God. It's set to the tune of what now what is uh, became the German national anthem for a while, but it's from a, a text by Haydn. But you all would recognize it as Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, which is why we don't sing it because people are offended by it. But we're almost to the point where we can sing it again, because most of the generations that remember it that way don't remember it that way anymore. Does that make sense? And it'll, in about 10, 15 years, we can probably sing it more. But it's glorious things of thee are spoken, uh, uh, Zion city of our God. So what does that mean? Is it talking about Jerusalem itself? Well, yeah, Jerusalem had the temple, right? And it had it was God's uh, it was God's place for his people for a while. But what we really mean Jerusalem is, is, I mean, by Zion, is Zion is any place God is. So God's people in the church, when we gather in word and sacrament, that's Zion. We're experiencing Zion today. And ultimately, Zion is heaven. 
right? So it's kind of a type. So yeah, Jerusalem's kind of a, a foreshadowing of it. And it is Zion because the temple's there. But the ultimate Zion is, of course, wherever Christ is. That's Zion. So that's just, just to keep that in mind. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. What is Mount Zion? Is that a specific geographical mountain? Or is that a it, like the mountain that Jerusalem's on? Or what? Both. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so both. So yes, uh, Jerusalem sits. And if you've seen pictures of this, um, and, you, and actually we have Psalms of Ascent because you went up to Jerusalem, right? Because Jerusalem's kind of on a, on a fortified hill. It's a strategic location. So on one hand, Mount Zion is where the temple is, right? There's a temple mount. We call it the temple mount. So some people call that Mount Zion, and that would be true to a certain extent. However, we also get these images in places like Ezekiel and Isaiah and in the book of Revelation, where the temple mount or the mountain of God is where all the peoples come. To acknowledge the God. It's the day of the Lord. It's eternal things, right? It's Messiah. So it's prefigured in the Temple Mount, but it's ultimately fulfilled in heaven. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's there, but it's ultimately fulfilled in heaven. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, regarding uh, Jerusalem, is Jerusalem unique in that it is not a tell? So Tel Aviv is built on another civilization. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, Jerusalem has always been Jerusalem, right? Right. Well, it was a t and you'll see it on a map that we're going to get to today. It was called Jebus before this. That's where we get the Jebusites. So it had a different name. And we also think before that it was called Salem because we think the high priest Melchizedek that Abraham ties to in the book of Genesis is the high priest of Salem, which is a derivative word for peace. And Abraham's mysterious figure, we don't know much about him. He's the priest king of, of Salem. And Abraham actually pays him a tithe and he blesses and Abraham's blessed by Melchizedek. And then later on, Jesus, of course, we know is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Salem in Genesis is probably Jerusalem. And in fact, if you want to go even further on that, on that same Temple Mount, most people think that Mount Moriah, where Abraham has the sacrifice of Isaac, and then they discover um, a goat, right? That's a ram that's caught in the thickets, and uh, God actually provides the sacrifice. They think that's actually where the temple is eventually built. So, so all of those, those, those sites with Abraham's life, whether it's Melchizedek showing up as the high priest of Salem or Mount Moriah, that area is the Jerusalem area that early, if that makes any sense. And then later when Abraham uh, dies, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Israel ends up in Egypt for 400 years. That's when the Jebusites settle there and call it Jebus or Jebus, right? That's why that's there. And then when David actually eventually fully conquers the city, it becomes what we now call Jerusalem. And you can see kind of the root words when you say Jerusalem, you can see how that's there, right? So Jerusalem is there. And so um, it was never a tell because a tell was just like a small fortified hill, right? That's kind of what that was. This was always kind of populated for a long time, um, again, by the Jebusites before and then later on by Israel itself. And of course, it's been continuously populated ever since, really, right? I mean, so you it's it's had continuous settlement for about 4,000 years. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, and when... So, um... On that mount, when Abraham was going to have to sacrifice Isaac, right, a, a ram came and saved him. Well, then on that same site, that's where Jesus, our lamb, saved us. Right, because it would be yeah, because it would be Cal Calvary, Mount Moriah could be Calvary, and then uh, Salem would be where the Temple Mount is, and it's all the same area, right? It's all the same area. It's the area in or around Jerusalem, correct? So symbolically, it. I mean, can you absolutely prove this without a shadow of doubt that that's what Mount Moriah is? That's Abraham and Isaac. Well, no, it's not like we have the exact location. We didn't. Have, we don't have like an atlas, you know, from 2000 BC. But theologically, it makes a lot of sense. If we think that's where they're at, that this is where God's going to provide the ultimate sacrifice. So this is a symbol of what's going to happen later. God himself. Remember, Abraham, as he's going up to the mountain, Isaac says, Father, we have the wood and we have all this stuff. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says one of the most important line, God himself will provide the lamb, right? Or provide the sacrifice. That's the most important line in the whole thing, because that's what makes it make sense. And so if Jesus is sacrificed in that same spot, this is like a reenactment because it's Abraham's only son, right? This is going to be a reenactment of what's going to happen 2,000 years later. It's, it's, it's pretty impressive. So, yes, what Patty is saying is absolutely correct. There's a lot of typology and foreshadowing that's going on here. So, good, good, good questions as we set this up. It's always good to remember these kind of high theology things as we look at the text. Again, the people are obvious. A lot of those are uh, either priests or kings or uh, military leaders, or in case of Asaph, he's the director of the temple music in the temple, Asaph. So that's, that's what that is, Zadok the priest. 
And then, of course, the chronicle for the exiles. Here's the right. The rule of David's house and the appointed services of the Levites as a record of how God's people keep the faith. And so that's that's why Chronicles exist. So it has this upper view, this kind of upper story where Samuel is going to be kind of nitty gritty. David's going to act insane for a while um, because he's trying to act in disguise. He's afraid. So he's going to act insane intentionally. We're going to run into that hopefully today if we get there. Um, there's, uh, you know, Saul throwing his spear at David. It's very much, very much drum dramatic, like, you know, event after event. And we can even get a geographic location of where David uh, travels around and as he flees from Saul, this is not that Chronicles is much more macro in its approach. Chronicles is much more theological in its approach. It wants you to see kind of salvation history from that upper story view. All right. So some law themes, you can see that there. Uh, breaking faith, because what Chronicles is going to argue is like the reason they're in exile in the first place is because they screw up, right? They aren't fulfilling their end of the deal, their end of the covenant. They fail to follow God's word. And so they need to seek after God and repent. That's that law part, right? This is how we've screwed up. There's also gospel. God continues to rule through David anyways, and the Lord's ruling through David's house. God is with his servant. And then, of course, the atonement at the tabernacle where sins are covered, right? That word atonement means covering. And in the Old Testament, that's a temporary covering. In the New Testament, it is a permanent covering, which is, by the way, one of the reasons, um, speaking of current events a little bit, I know I don't want to talk a lot about current events because then we'll get too derailed. But one of the reasons we as Lutherans, we have like two paths when it comes to Israel that we have to kind of like avoid. One is uh, that Israel and the church are separate and that Israel is going to eventually build a temple again and start doing sacrifices again. That's a problem because that means Jesus didn't do enough. That's an insult to the sacrifice of Christ, right? So obviously we don't want that. That's one extreme where Israel and the church are so separate that God deals with Israel different than he deals with the church. No, there's one people of God. Okay, so that's one extreme we have to avoid because Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. That's like the extreme kind of dispensational, left behind type theology stuff is over there. The other extreme is what some people call supersessionism or replacement theology, where the church is so the church has actually replaced Israel. That's also a problem because God's promises are irrevocable. They're still there and they're fulfilled in Christ. So Jews that are that believe in Christ are still part of that first promise, right? Does that make sense? And so it's the the church has been grafted in to use Paul's metaphor. So we have to avoid both extremes. One, Israel and the church are separate. We're like the political entity. God's going to save differently than the church. That that's that's an insult to the sacrifice of Christ. That's a problem. And this other problem, we're like God's done completely. No, Paul. I mean, read Paul in Romans nine through eleven. Paul says, I will even become accursed myself. I'll become anathema so that my people would believe. That's what Paul says in Romans 9 through 11. So we are avoiding both extremes. Does that make sense? Cut off the ends of the stick, if that makes if, if that helps you a little bit. All right. And so that's just atonement is the reason I bring that up. Again, that sacrifice, that covering. The Old Testament's a temporary covering. So to redo that now will be to say that you need you need that covering of sin. No, that ultimate covering has already happened. The one atonement has taken place. You don't need all those animals anymore. All right, there's the dates again, if you needed those dates, 1,000 to 500 BC. Now, the genealogies go all the way back to creation with Adam, right? Adam begat Seth, Adam begat, you get all those begats, right, in in, in First Chronicles 1 through 9. But the main bulk of the narrative in what we call First and Second Chronicles is from 1,000 to 500 BC. And again, you can see that with Saul as we get into that. And again, it has that macro, that macro perspective. So I'm just giving that to you. We're starting that. I'm warning you that we're going to start pulling from the text because it is it's part of our uh, it's part of our view. So I'm going to let you look at the first part of here, this little Bible project thing, as they introduce the book the book for you here. Here we go. Ugh. If my computer cooperates, there it is. The books of First and Second Chronicles. While there are two separate books in our Bibles, that division is not original. Due to scroll length, the book was divided in two, but it was written as one book with one coherent storyline. Now, in our English Bibles, Chronicles comes after the books of Samuel and Kings, and most of Chronicles is actually repeat content from those books. And so most modern readers, when they come to Chronicles, they think, wait a minute, I just read all of this, and so they skip it. And that's a shame, because this book is really unique and important important in the Bible. In the traditional Jewish ordering of the Bible, Chronicles is actually the last book because it summarizes all of the Jewish scriptures. The first word in the book is Adam, the first character at the beginning of the story, and then the last paragraph announces the return of Israel from exile. 
Now, we don't know who wrote this book, but we can tell from details within it, it was produced by somebody who lived a couple hundred years after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian exile. Now, for this author, Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt some time ago, and as we learned from Ezra and Nehemiah, things were not going well. The great prophetic hope was that the city and the temple would be rebuilt, that God would come to live among his people, the messianic king would come, and all the nations would come live under his peaceful rule, and none of that has happened. And so the author of Chronicles has reshaped these stories of David and Solomon and the kings of the past in order to provide a message of hope for the future. And we'll see that he's designed this book to emphasize two clear themes. First, the hope of the coming messianic king, and second, the hope for a new temple. Let's just dive in and you'll see these themes all over the book. First Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogies, long lists of names. And you'll read these and think that this is kind of boring, and that may be true for you, but actually they're very, very important. The author is summarizing here the whole storyline of the Old Testament by naming all of the key characters in the stories. And as he does so, he shapes the genealogies to emphasize two key lineages. First is the line of the promised messianic king. So lots of space is dedicated to tracing the line of Judah that led all the way to King David to whom the messianic promise was given. And then from David the author traces that line up into his own day. The other family line that receives lots of attention here is that of the priesthood, the descendants of Aaron who of course served in the temple. And so right from the start you can see the two main themes, the author's hope of the Messiah coming to build a new temple and it's rooted in these ancient genealogies. Now after that, the author moves into the stories about David, and most of these are going to be familiar to you from the book of Samuel, but again, there's some really important differences. So first of all, the author leaves out all of the negative stories about David where he's portrayed as weak or immoral. So Saul chasing David around the desert and persecuting him, the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband, all of that is gone. And what's left are the stories that portray David as a good guy. And not only that, there's also new additional material that you won't find in the book of Samuel that shows David in a very positive light. So there's a large block of chapters where David makes preparations for the temple. He arranges resources and builders and Levites and choirs. And not only that, the author also portrays David as a Moses-like figure. God gives David plans for building the temple just as he gave plans to Moses for building the tabernacle. So why all this new material about David? The author's not trying to hide David's flaws. He knows that anybody can go read about them in the book of Samuel. Rather, he's trying to portray David as the ideal king in order to make him an image or a type of the future Messiah from the line of David. It's very similar to how Jeremiah or Ezekiel spoke of the coming Messiah as a new David. This is most clear in how the author retells the story of God's covenant promise to David in 1 Chronicles 17. When you compare the story with its parallel in 2 Samuel 7, you'll see that the author of Chronicles is highlighting that neither David nor Solomon nor any of the kings from his line were the messianic king, and that when the Messiah does come, he will be a king like David. And so for this author, these stories about David from the past are what sustain his hope for the future. After David okay, so that's where we're going to pause right there. So that's, do you see, that's the point. So we're going to get Saul chasing. So as you see that right at the, at the top, he leaves out persecution by Saul. Well, that's what we're going to try. We're going to start today is when he's persecuted by Saul. Um, but the, the point is, is that we're going to start looking at Chronicles now for that macro view, because in first Chronicles 10, we're going to get the only kind of account of Saul's reign. And it basically says, Saul did this wrong. Saul did this wrong. Saul did this wrong. Therefore he failed. That's basically what First Chronicles does. And I want to kind of zoom in on that a little bit. And then we'll really start getting into it as David kind of ascends here. And we're going to really kind of look at both books. So I wanted to introduce you to that today. And you're going to see that um, as we kind of pursue through. So now as I go back to the slides here, let me give you this. Back to this one. You have uh, printed for you a map that looks like this. Okay. So I gave that to you. So it's being displayed on the screen as well. It's this handout, and you have an explanation for it with numbers on it. And so this comes from the Archaeology Study Bible. So I have uh, access to that. Um, it was a gift from uh, Rod Jenigan, actually, before he passed away. So the Archaeology Study Bible, it's not actually an amazing study Bible. What it really does a good job is just kind of rooting it in a place. You feel like you're actually rooted in an actual historical location. And so in chapters 19 through 27, 
So that's a pretty long narrative. You have to admit, it takes up a huge chunk of 1 Samuel. From 1 Samuel 19 through 27, David is fleeing from Saul. That whole time. And so that's that's a lot of material. And so you can see the numbers on this. And so it starts in the north there. So the northwest of the Dead Sea. You see the one, two, three, and 4. And so you can see, so if you look at those outlines, we can just kind of follow along just kind of together just to give you that macro view. So he starts off uh, fleeing from Saul in Gabeah. We'll read that today. And then he goes to Samuel in Ramah. That's number two. So it's not that far away. But then Saul seeks him there. So then he flees back to Jonathan in Gabeah because Jonathan has become David's best friend. They love each other as they love each other's own souls, so to speak, right? We'll talk about that in a second, by the way, because modern culture, as you can imagine, has tried to corrupt that one also. Um, after Jonathan warned David of Saul's determination, he flees to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob, okay, where he collects food and Goliath's sword. David briefly sought refuge in the Philistine city of Gath, where he acts insane, and then he sets up his headquarters at a cave in Adullam, okay? Then his ranks swelled to 400 men, in order to protect his parents from harm, he then leaves them in the king care of the king of Moab. So now you have to go all the way to the eastern side. Look at Moab right there, right? Number seven, because that's on the east, on the borders of Israel. We have some archaeological evidence from Moab, by the way. Uh, it's a Moab slab that records a war between Moab and Israel. Um, so this is definitely based in real history there as well. So he goes there and lives in the stronghold in number eight. And they're thinking that it could be right there. You see that number there where Masada uh, Masada is an ancient strong. You can go visit this today. It's where the Jews had a last stand against the Romans. Um, and the Romans actually built a big ramp. Part of the ramp is still there because they used a, an earthen an earthen ramp to um, assault the Jewish stronghold. And then they all basically immolated themselves so they could not die under a Roman sword. It's kind of a last stand by the Jews um, at Masada. So you can visit this site right now. So it's perhaps... David, because it's the stronghold, it's perhaps where David hit. It's kind of a neat connection um, between different eras. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Those Jews are those Maccabees? Yes. Yeah, the Maccabean revolt. Yep. Okay, uh, number nine. So then he goes to the to rescue a town from the Philistines. That's where nine is, where it says the forest of Herod. It's got a question mark. So there's a, some dispute or some question of where that is. That's right in the middle of your map up to the left there from the Dead Sea. Then um, he heard that Saul's coming there, and he wants to know if the, the, the town that he saved is going to betray them to Saul. And God tells him, yep, they're going to betray him. So then he uh, goes to another wilderness, which is in Ziph. So it's down and to the right there, close to Mount Carmel, right in the middle of your map there. Okay. Then after the men of Ziph betrayed David to Saul, David and his men went to live in the wilderness of Maon. So then they go even further south, number 12, after narrowly escaping capture there by Saul. Then he flees to the strongholds of Engendi. So that's number 13. That's right against the Dead Sea. He then again evades capture by Saul and refuses an opportunity to take Saul's life. He does that twice, by the way. He cuts a corner of the robe famously, but there's another time that he spares Saul. Okay, so he spares Saul twice in, in this account. Then to the wilderness of Paran, that's the number 15. And while he's there, David was again betrayed by the men of Ziph and takes that other opportunity. And then he and his men sought refuge with Akshish, the king of Gath. And that's all the way over in the upper left corner in, Philisti in Phil Philistia. There we go, where the Philistines are. So that's quite the narrative, right? And so when you're reading 1 Samuel chapters 19 through 27, it can get a bit confusing because there's all these place names that are located. And so that's why I'm giving you that map because it'll help you kind of trace where this is going. Yes, go ahead, Ralph. How, how much time did all this take? That's a lot of moving around. Yeah, this is over this is over probably over several months. Um, and Saul, you'll notice in the narrative also that Saul sometimes breaks off the pursuit because the Philistines are being a pain again, or something's going on in his own household. And so it's a really interesting time as he's pursued. So if you keep this, this will help you as we go through those chapters. And again, I'm not going to like really parse every chapter and every verse. We're just going to go through this because it's a big historical narrative, but this will help you visualize what in the world's going on because he's just going all over Israel right? Including into Moab and Philistia. So places that don't even belong to Israel. He's even being hosted by his former enemies, right? With the Philistines. He seeks refuge there. And having cities of refuge was very common in the Near East. In Israel, it was the cities of the Levites are the cities of refuge. Okay. And so being a refugee, there was certain, uh, as a political or military refugee, there was certain status you had. And so even the Philistines and the Moabs would still treat, Moabites, sorry, would treat you with a certain level of respect as a leader, and so they wouldn't just kill you for showing up. If you claimed refuge status, there's hospitality rules and other things that they all obeyed. And so he shows up there. 
Okay. So let's look at this narrative a little bit and how this starts. So this starts in 19, goes all the way to 27. We're going to take a huge chunk of Samuel today and next week. Like we're going to cover a bunch of chapters. If I don't cover everything, you'll have to read it on your own because I want to get into the other books here. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, this is starting in verse one, his son and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine. That's Goliath. Okay, And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window and fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, who's his own daughter, right? Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time. And they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the spirit of God came upon him also. And he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? So God humiliates Saul again before his man, right? Both David and also Samuel, his chosen prophet. So he's before God's chosen anointed king and Samuel's and his chosen prophet. And so Saul is utterly humiliated. A Jewish man at this time, and even now, uh, nudity for Jewish men is, is an absolute state of shame. Okay, think of Jesus on the cross, for example. It's ritual shaming to be naked. For Jewish men in particular. So for Saul to strip himself down like this and be prophesying and be utterly uh, ritually ashamed is something. God is teaching him a lesson. He's humbling Saul. Remember, Saul has a, has a pride problem. Now, the weird account here, there's a couple of weird points and then I got to keep moving. Right here in verse 13, Michal takes an image. Why does she have an idol in her house? Because that's actually the word here. Some of your translations might have it. She's David's wife. Why does she have any idols? Well, there's a few an answers to this. We don't get any explanation. There's a couple of answers. It could be that Saul's household was syncretistic, meaning trying to blend different religions. I mean, think what you know about Saul's Saul's personality. In chapter 27, he's going to try to, to consult a witch. Okay, so Saul, that's one of the things that in First Chronicles, that's one of the things they're going to they're going to call him out on. Okay, the witch at Endor, 27, 28. So it's possible that Saul's family itself had these as household gods and worshiped both Yahweh and the gods. They're trying to blend that together. We see that throughout the Old Testament as a big problem for the Jews. So it's possible that that's what this is. It's also possible that this was just kind of like a family heirloom that was just sitting in the closet somewhere. 
And Mikal was just like, well, we got to put up a disguise somehow and pretend that he's in bed. So I'm just going to pull this out of the closet. Not that they were worshiping it. It was just there. Right. So that's not say that doesn't say that McCall was worshiping this or that David was an idolater or anything like that. It's just there. And so we have speculation on why this is there. It's but it's the classic. You've seen this, right? Like, you know, cartoons and old movies, they do this. Right. OK, this person's life is under threat. So we're going to put him in bed and put a dummy there and set it up, put a doll there. And then, you know, the poison dart hits the wood or something. You know, it's like it's one of those things. Yeah, go ahead. So when they say prophesied that yes let's go back to that here where he is Saul also among the prophets Pro to prophesy simply means to tell the truth about God it doesn't necessarily mean to tell the future okay prophesying is simply telling the truth sometimes even at an inconvenient time to prophesy is to speak about God and to speak God's truth so the gift of prophecy it rarely actually has to do with the future it's telling it like it is and so that's why, again, think about Saul. Saul's trying to go against God. And now Saul's actually having to tell the truth about God. It's very similar to what happens to Balaam in the book of Numbers, right? Where they hire Balaam to go like to go prophesy against, against Israel. And then Balaam actually ends up blessing Israel. Remember that? It's very similar. It's the same kind of genre. And actually, the uh, ancient readers of this probably would have made that connection. So that would be a circumstance where they would be... Someone would be telling someone else about the truth of God. Right, correct. And, and and usually it's a truth that not everybody has, or that they're not, usually it's in a very high poetic way, or it's talking about God's rule over the nations, or what God's going to do, or how God's going to come in judgment, or something like that. It usually has a little bit of a higher, it's not just saying, it's not just walk, waking up in the morning and say, God's good. Okay, well, that's not prophecy, right? But saying that this is the state of Israel right now, and this is how God views Israel right now, that's prophecy. Right? So it's a little bit of a higher, it's a higher level about God's truth. And often it's an inconvenient truth. Um, it's truth that most people don't want to hear. Um, that's, I mean, so actually, if you have the spiritual gift there, that's actually a spiritual gift, prophecy. It doesn't mean that you can tell the truth. That's a, a lot of our charismatic church churches will do that. I have a word from the Lord this morning. And this is the Lord. That's that's not what that means. Right. And if you say that, by the way, you better be right, because in Deuteronomy, if you if it's if it's wrong, you're actually supposed to be exiled or put to death. OK. Second of all, it also means that you can't contradict it. So when you make that claim, the reason people do that is they don't want people to push back. I have a word of why then I can't disagree. See, so so that's that's and that's not what this is. Right. This is this is actually God, the spirit of God allowing his word to be put forth. The spirit of God does never, God never contradicts himself, right? Because there's no variation or change in God. And so a word from God will be in cahoots or in complete compatibility with his existing word, his revealed word, which would be not only the scriptures, but also the person work of Christ. So if somebody comes out and starts saying something that's contradictory or questionable and those sort of things, obviously that's not prophecy. That's a problem we have in certain movements, like the certain charismatic circles, also um, word of faith, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel. That's a lot of that stuff runs afoul of that. Go ahead. So I, I assume then that the people hearing this and hearing it eventually from Saul heard him validating what the others had said. He's not arguing with it. So they're saying, okay, he's on track. Yeah. We can trust him for now. Right. But then he's still trying to kill David. Right. right. So he he knows that's what's so tragic about Saul. He's so prideful and he's so he's rejected God to a certain extent that he tries to use God to justify his own means. He's Saul is basically a living example of what the Israelites did way before when they tried to use God like a magic trick with the Ark of the Covenant. Saul is a walking embodiment of that, of trying to manipulate God for his own purposes. OK, and so because he's going to say, bless you in the name of the Lord when he's doing the wrong thing. Okay, then we should, by the way, that's a violation of the second commandment, right? Not taking the Lord's God, Lord's name in vain. Okay, Saul's doing that. He's taking the Lord's name in vain throughout this. He's breaking the second commandment the whole time by by, by claiming to be um, uh, on God's side with some of this. It's pretty, pretty, impre uh, pretty impressive in the level of uh, depravity, I guess is the way I would say that. So here we go. So look at this. Yeah, go ahead. Would it be fair to say this? If you're prophesying, not, you're not necessarily telling the future, but that you're revealing something that that God about God that nobody else knows something that's new. Yeah, it could be new or it could be, but it also can be a reminder. 
Because in prophecy, right, how often do we read, you know, if you read Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's return, right? Return to the Lord your God, and he will forgive you. Return to the Lord your God. Now, really high prophecy is stuff like we read in church today, like Ezekiel. I myself will shepherd my people Israel. I myself, right? That's high, high prophecy. But everyday type stuff, like when you read in the New Testament, that gift of prophecy, it's usually just kind of that that meaningful, it's what you need to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear. If that's a good way of saying that, right? So there's a difference between, like, say, teaching and prophecy in that sense, right? Teaching is just this is what I it's basically what I do all the time, right? It's teaching, right? Exhortation is another thing. That's often what preaching is. Preaching is exhortation, encouraging people to do the things that God wants them to do, or to live in their baptisms, or to live in Jesus's grace. That's exhortation. That's a lot of what the pastoral task is. Prophecy is kind of weird because it's one of those things where it's people don't want to hear what you have to say to them, but they need to hear it. That's kind of, it's very much a law thing often. And when it's not a law thing, it's definitely kind of like a cosmic level or that kind of ultimate thing. And so it's a, it's, it's, it's got a different fit. So yes, the answer is yes. Sometimes it does have that kind of eschatological, that kind of end times or that high view, but other times it's more mundane. Hey, this is our status right now. And we need to return for God, return to God right now because God is not happy with us. That's, you know, I mean, that's, that's often a lot of the prophecy you read Isaiah one through 39, a lot of Isaiah one through 39, that's all it is, right? Come and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they're going to be as white as snow, right? It's not in the year 35, this is going to happen, right? That's because that's, so we misinterpret that word because we think like Nostradamus or something. And that's not, that's not what that word means. And even the future prophecies of the Messiah are often typological, meaning that they're fulfilled in David and his descendants, but then fulfilled to a greater extent in Christ. So again, we're talking about something a little different there, but no, this is good. This is good clarification. All right. I want to, I want to talk about this Jonathan here. Look what it says. And then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Read about the Psalms, by the way. Read the Psalms where David says things like, I'm innocent, O Lord. Please declare me innocent. You know, I'm being pursued by my enemies. You can see that perspective in the Psalms. And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. That's Jonathan talking. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Then David, Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his own love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Okay, in earlier chapters, Jonathan actually took off his royal robes and gave them to David. Do you remember this? Uh, back in chapter 18, 19. And so that's chapter 18. And so there's a there's a covenant here. And I, I've got to mention this. I, I don't like having to do this, but you will read this. I promise you will read this. There are uh, modern interpreters of this passage that try to say that Jonathan and David has some sort of inappropriate physical relationship. 
Because when they read these passages, because, well, he loved him as his own soul. Well, that must mean they were secretly, you know, like lovers or something. Right. Yeah. So they, they, they interpret this in that, uh, in that context. Okay. There is no evidence for this. What you're doing is you're taking, remember how I talked about glasses earlier? They have a certain glasses. They're taking modern sensibilities where everything has been sexualized and reading it into the text. Okay. There's no evidence for it in the text. And there's some other reasons why this is self-evidently patently absurd. Okay. Because if there was anything going on here, don't you think Saul would have eliminated his own son immediately? He doesn't want David in his house at all. Right. So this is just, it's foolhardy. Number one, you know, in, in a couple of different reasons. Number two, in the ancient Near East, and even today, affection between male friends is normal. See, in our culture, right, if two dudes hug or if two dudes are like kind of close to each other, you know, people like elbow each other and make fun of them. Right. In this culture, in, right now, you will find Arab men holding hands. It does not mean that they are homosexual. It just means that they're friends. Right. If you watch old movies of like World War Two and the troops are like carousing around and just being silly, that doesn't mean they're homosexual. It just means they're being silly. You get the point that I'm making on this? We've lost this sort of connection of like strong male friendship that's very emotive. And so what people have done is they see these sort of things and they read those connotations into the text. And so you will, I, I promise you, at some point, especially if you're online, it's always the best place in the world, right? To be is online, right? <laughs> but especially if you're online and you read like blogs or commentaries, or if you like even just use the Wikipedia on Jonathan and David, you will find this theory. So if like if you Wikipedia, John and Jonathan and David, you will find that now they don't say that it's true. They say, well, some scholars teach, some right? Or so, but they, but they, they, but there are out, they, it's out there. So you should know it's out there and you should that, that there, and you should also know that there's absolutely no evidence for it. They're reading it into the text. Okay. So they're putting on modern 21st century hypersexualized postmodern glasses and saying, well, this proves that David and Jonathan, rather than taking the text for what it is, they're wanting to find things in the text to justify their own behavior or their own cultural assumptions is what this is. Okay. So I just, I have to address that because it comes up in apologetics all the time. I, I love the part yeah. where it says uh, that um, Jonathan is saying, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David. Yeah. Not if, not if when maybe he says when yeah jonathan knows who david is yeah yeah jonathan knows that the other thing is you can be really really good friends with somebody and it not be physical in that way right and so for some reason people assume that love if it's deep love has to be consummated physically they for some reason there's the culture has made that assumption and that's just simply wrong okay there's different types of love so that and, and that's this is yeah we're about there um and i'm this is not a bad place um the way that I teach this to my high school students, and I got this from, a, I think, a Roman Catholic teacher, actually. But there's two ways to screw love up. It's to love the right thing the wrong way or to love the wrong thing the right way. And so what they mean by that, for example, it's appropriate for me to love my son, but I don't love him the same way I love my wife. Right. It's appropriate for me to love my friends, but I don't love my friends the way I love my wife. It's appropriate for me for, to love my parents, but I don't love my parents the same way I love my son. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. We love differently. It's not all the same thing. That is actually foolish. So that phrase, by the way, that you see during that month of the year where everybody gets blind. Okay. In that year, it says, you'll you see that phrase, love is love. That is wrong. Not all loves are the same. Not all loves are equal. And it's actually patently absurd. Okay. It's a tautology because nobody actually believes that. Think about it. Does anybody, I mean, honestly, does anybody believe that the love that you have for your cat is the same as the love for your dad? <laughs> well, love is love. I mean, it's 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 a it's a pointless comment. I know what they're trying to say, but it's wrong. Okay, so whenever you see that phrase, and that's the same thing here in First Samuel. Well, love is love. No, okay. This is because David is God's chosen, and because Jonathan is best friends with David, and they they have honor and loyalty and fealty to each other. And it's, it's a brother loves at all times. That's what it says in Proverbs, right? Proverbs 17, 17. It's one of the first verses I ever had to memorize because I had two brothers, okay? I mean, my parents were probably trying to teach me something, okay? But a, a friend loves at all times, right? And six closer than a brother, right? You get those phrases all throughout Proverbs, okay? And that's what this is. 
This is not some weird postmodern in service to some sort of weird political agenda or something. Okay. And so you need to know that that exists. I'm not trying to, you know, ignore it. I hate that I have to say it, but it's there. It's there. Okay. So you should know that Jonathan and David sometimes are used in service of a modern political agenda that has nothing to do with the text. Okay. I just want to throw that out there. The excursus, I didn't bring my commentary in today, but my first Samuel commentary, Mike has a whole excursus, like three pages on this. Because he, as a scholar in our Senate, under Steinman, he has to address it in his commentary because it's so common in academic circles to try to do that. And so he has like three pages refuting it, basically. And he refers to some other studies refuting it. All right. Uh, we should probably close because we're about 50 minutes. Any comments or questions on this? So be prepared to do like a bunch of chapters next week. <laughs> um, actually, if you look just really briefly on the back side of that map, you have uh the rise of Saul and the rise of David in a chart. So I give you some different passages on that, just the comparison between Saul and David. And then you have the highlights of David's fleeing. So we've kind of looked at that on chapters 19 to 20. The Lutheran Study Bible has a good word on this. So I've copied these from different uh, uh, Bibles, the Archaeology Study Bible, the Lutheran Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible. I'm like using all these different ones and combining them together as I do my homework here. But I love what they say here on chapter 20. It's, this is from the Lutheran Study Bible. It says, David and Jonathan's friendship displays lasting loyalty and personal self-sacrifice. It has nothing to do with anything else. Okay, Give thanks to the Lord for the friends he has blessed you with and the wonderful way he has protected you. Pray to grow in the grace of giving thanks by grace. God treats us all of us infinitely better than we deserve. And it quotes the Lutheran hymn, right? By grace, I'm saved, grace free and boundless. My soul believe and doubt it not. Amen. So that's how they kind of, that's how the Lutheran study Bible takes this. And that's how you should take this. But unfortunately, we're, we live in an era in which they try to even use God's word in service of a, of a modern agenda. And so thank God, thanks to be to God for a beautiful picture of a good friendship between Jonathan and David. All right. Any other comments, questions? Are we good? Okay, let's say the blessing on ourselves. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. All right, see you later. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org and make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.